Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone, uh, to what I think is going to be uh, a very informative banner lecture. Uh, I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, welcome uh, both to folks in the auditorium and to people who are tuning in live on Facebook and YouTube. Um, as always, we always like to start by thanking you, our members, for making this programming possible. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, your participation is absolutely essential to making this happen, uh, and we are very grateful to you. So thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, a few program notes before we start the lecture. Um, uh, movie myth busting uh, will continue uh, on October 12th at 7 p.m. That's a virtual program. Uh, where we can, uh, you'll be able to join uh, the VMHC, the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and the Black History Museum and Cultural Center, uh, Virginia, um, in a program uh, that talks about the film Defiance, uh, a Holocaust film with connections to our Violins of Hope exhibit. So if you haven't had a chance to see the Violins of Hope exhibit up on floor above us, please uh, take a chance to do that. Uh, our Commonwealth Classroom programs will also continue uh, on October 14th at 7 p.m. That is also a virtual program. Uh, author Betty Kearse will be here to discuss her book, uh, The Other Madisons. And that's uh, a partial quest, uh, part testimony, and part historical correction about the history of her family. Uh, Betty will be joined by filmmaker Eduardo Montes Bradley, and Christine Colts, CEO of the First Amendment Museum in Augusta, Maine. On October 18th at 10 a.m., uh, our Curator Conversations program uh, will continue. Uh, this is also a virtual program where Andy Talkov, our Senior Director for Curatorial Affairs, will be talking about the powerful connections uh, between Virginia and Virginians and the Holocaust, again, as seen in our latest exhibition, Violins of Hope. And also related to Violence of Hope, uh, the final concert in that series uh, will be on October 24th uh, here at 5.30, where musicians from the Richmond Symphony will perform a chamber concert, concert on instruments preserved and restored as part of the Violence of Hope. So this is a very special performance where uh, you'll be able to hear uh, the music being played from these period instruments. And finally, our next uh, banner lecture will be Thursday, October 28th, just in time for Halloween. Uh, that's a noontime program also. Uh, Catherine McGuire will be here to talk about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Lessons for Creative Success from Literature's Greatest Antihero. But today we're very, very pleased to have with us uh, Professor Dick Howard uh, to talk about uh, the 50th anniversary of uh, Virginia's constitution. Virginia's Declaration of Rights declares all men to be equally free and independent. But as to suffrage, the declaration speaks in more qualified terms. In the years since 1776, successive revisions of Virginia's constitution reflect sharp debate over how we should define the political community, who belongs and who doesn't. In the 19th century, the idea of community became more inclusive, white, universal white male suffrage, and by 1851 and during Reconstruction, inclusion of African Americans. In 1902, however, Virginians adopted a constitution that steeped in notions of white supremacy, disenfranchised most black voters. In 1971, Virginia renounced that racially tainted era with the adoption of a new constitution. What brought about that change and what work remains to be done? A.E. Dick Howard is the Warner Booker Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. A native of Richmond, he is a graduate of the University of Richmond and received his law degree from the University of Virginia. He was also a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. After graduating from law school, he served as a law clerk to Justice Hugo Black of the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Active in public affairs, Professor Howard was executive director in the commission that wrote Virginia's new constitution and directed the successful referendum campaign for its ratification. He has been counsel to the General Assembly of Virginia and a consultant to state and federal bodies, including the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Professor Howard has written extensively on constitutional law and history, including the two-volume Commentaries on the Constitution of Virginia. And finally, the upcoming issue of our own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography will include a fascinating interview with Professor Howard about his role in the creation and ratification of the 1971 Constitution. Please give a warm welcome to Professor Dick Howard. Thank you very much. Um, I'm always delighted to be back in my native city. I suspect I have some friends out there. Um, after a year of being teaching virtually, uh, I'm back in the classroom this fall at the law school at UVA. And so uh, I'm in that sort of mode today. So if I spot a former student out there or something, uh, there we are. Andrew, uh, forgive me if I cold called you on. <laughs> that was a. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be prepared in, in any event for that. So thank, thank you for showing up. That's a nice testimonial. Um, I do want to talk about Virginia's Constitution. And if we had unlimited time, which we don't, I would want to start the story a long time before 1776. I mean, the full account would take us back centuries to British constitutionalism, to the uh, Virginia Charter of 1606, to the revolutionary period when which was in effect kind of a dry run, a, a rehearsal in effect for constitutional developments the years after 1765. I mean, there's a, it's a huge story. So you have to imagine that we had a session in which we talked about that. Just imagine there's something that's been going on because that's the threshold for the first Virginia constitution, the one that was adopted in uh, Williamsburg in 1776. Pretty remarkable gathering. All the notable people were there. James Madison, for example, was there. Edmund Randolph, a number of others. Um, and it was on May the 5th, 1776, that Virginia's convention instructed our delegates in Philadelphia to introduce the Resolution for Independence. And on the same day in Williamsburg, the convention set to work on Virginia's first constitution. Actually, they, they, they set to work on two documents. It's interesting. They First, they wrote a Declaration of Rights, and then they went to work on a frame of government. And that sequence is important because it, it followed social compact theory, John Locke, his treatise, the notion that the first thing you do is declare natural rights which don't depend on government. They precede government. And then you set up a frame of government. So that's precisely what... George Mason and his compatriots did in Williamsburg that uh, in May of that year. It's uh, the Declaration has survived. If you look at Virginia's present Constitution, Article One is very close to what it was in 1776. It's the Bill of Rights, few amendments. The frame of government, the rest of the Constitution, of course, has changed considerably in the years since 1776. Now, one of the people who did not like that first constitution was Thomas Jefferson. And I've always thought maybe he didn't like it because he wasn't there. <laughs> you know, Jefferson couldn't imagine you could write a constitution without him. He was in Philadelphia, but he spent the next 50 years complaining about the first constitution. Um, if you look at his notes on the state of Virginia, you find he sets out several complaints about the 76, 1776 document, uh, first that it was malapportioned. He said it favored the small old Tidewater counties down in eastern Virginia at the expense of the growing counties in Piedmont and the Valley and beyond. Secondly, he said the suffrage was, was not sufficient, that uh, they maintained the, the, the property qualification. You had to have property to vote. He said he, people who fought and risked their lives in the revolution came home and, and, and couldn't vote. So that was a fault. Thirdly, he said it lacked um, authentic separation of powers. 
that although it, it established three branches of government, in fact, all the power devolved on the legislature. He thought that was, that was not a good idea. And then finally, most fundamentally, he said it's not really a constitution. He said the body of men who, were, who wrote that constitution were also the ones who were making ordinary laws for Virginia. And that confused the two functions that a constitution is meant to be superior to ordinary law. And if this convention could write the constitution, they could unwrite it. They could change it. They could abolish it. So he wanted something on a much firmer footing than that. Um, so Jefferson, as I say, spent the next 50 years to the very end of his life complaining about that document. And there was not a further revision of it until just after he died. Interestingly enough, despite his complaint about the lack of a fundamental founding foundation for the Constitution, the Virginia Supreme Court uh, began to treat it by the 1790s as if it were fundamental law. They, in effect, interpreted the document as being on a firmer footing than uh, Thomas Jefferson had, had seen it to be. So if... if those of you who are lawyers or know something about John Marshall's opinion in Marbury versus Madison will find it interesting that the Virginia judges in the 1790s were already laying out the same framework. They, they were anticipating John Marshall's decision here in Virginia. Um, one sidebar to this story is interesting. If you are thinking about the ways in which Virginia's constitutional development influenced the federal constitution, it's interesting that at the 1776 convention, um, George Mason's draft, George Mason was the principal architect of that document, and his draft provided for um, toleration in matters of religion. James Madison, who was a young, 25 years old at that time, uh, said that's not strong enough, that free exercise of religion is a right. Toleration sounds like something permissive, like a, a sort of a tolerance, just a, uh, just something that really depended on the whim of the, of the government. That's not enough. So the convention agreed to Madison's amendment to re replace toleration with free exercise of religion. But what they didn't do at that time was disestablish the church. Madison's amendment had that in mind, but for the convention that went too far. So that didn't happen until 10 years later when the General Assembly adopted um, Thomas Jefferson's uh, bill for the uh, for religious freedom that, that is so celebrated. So by that time, you had free exercise and disestablishment just on the sort of threshold of the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. So in many ways, you could say that these are Virginia events where the sort of legislative history, if you like, for the uh, religion clauses of the First Amendment. Well, the mainstream of the story is was just suggested in the introduction. Um, I want to really think about the way in which Virginia's constitution from that time forward to the present time has created or recognized a political community which is to say who belongs and who doesn't, who counts and who doesn't count, who, who really is part of what the uh, Virginia Constitution should be all about. Well, as you move from 1776 into the 19th century, as, as I mentioned, the Piedmont was growing. There was flourishing trade and commerce and uh, population growth in the western parts of the state. Uh, but the original Constitution still stayed in place. There were petitions for reform most every year when the assembly met uh, petitions would be lodged to call a new constitutional convention uh, and it was very slow in coming about um, but the western parts of the state were feeling much more frustrated because the eastern counties the old parts of the state were really in economic decline and yet they were the ones in the the, the, the seat of power so finally um a convention was called in Richmond in 1829 and 30. Um, Jefferson's, just after his death, Jefferson's will was finally um, finally uh, brought about. Um, there's an interesting letter that Jefferson had written to a friend of his, um, Samuel Kirchival, in 1816. And it's a letter that one should, it's often quoted, it should be, should be read. He talks about his philosophy of constitutional change. 
And he said that in effect, every, every generation should rethink the constitution. Now his day and time, of course, people didn't live as long, but he said, given mortality tables of that, of that day and time, that uh, of all the people who were aged 21 or older in 19 years, half of them would be dead. So he reckoned that to be a generation. Of course, today people live longer, so we might say 30 years, well, whatever it is. It's a, a notion of Jefferson's, uh, he, he put it in the phrase, the earth belongs always to the living generation, was his, his sort of thesis. Well, finally, as I say, it took 75 years, from the, or, or 50 years rather, from the time of the first constitution for this convention to meet in Richmond, 1829 and 30. And the reformers, thought they had wind in their sails that they were going to get something like universal white manhood suffrage. But the reform, as the debates went on, the debates, by the way, are published, 900 pages of very high flutin sort of language. They were quoting uh, Greek and Roman sources and the like. It's really quite impressive. A lot of learning was in the air. But when, when the convention finally ran its course, uh, the changes were marginal. They add, added um, freeholders in cities to householders to the freeholders of the uh, property qualification. They expanded the franchise somewhat. They adjusted the apportionment of legislative districts modestly, but all in all, um, not not enormous change. So big changes finally came about in um, 1851, 18, 1850, 1851. Another convention was called, and so at that convention, um, they finally achieved something like universal white manhood suffrage. Now, I say all those words deliberately because blacks, of course, did not count. They were largely slaves, very few free, freemen. Uh, women, as you know, were not yet enfranchised, but at least among the white male population, they were close. it was closely, closer to being a, a democratic principle. Um, I might add that in that at that convention, they finally agreed that the governor should be elected by the people. Up until that point, the governor had been elected uh, by the legislatures, almost like a parliamentary system. And so it took 75 years from the time of the revolution for the people of Virginia to finally be trusted to, to elect their own, their, their own governor. Well, that was the state of affairs when the Civil War came about, which, of course, was a complete upheaval of the constitutional system throughout the country, especially in the uh, states that were part of the Confederacy. And after, after Appomattox, after the Civil War, when the period of Reconstruction began, um, the, the former Confederate states had to do two things to be readmitted to the Union. Um, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment, and they had to write a new state constitution. So, if you go down to the Capitol building in Richmond, you, you can see where they, they met in the, what is the old hall of the House of Delegates in the Capitol. And in 1867-68, they had this Reconstruction Convention, which was a sharp departure from the ones that had met before the war. Uh, there were 105 members. Uh, 25 of the 105 were uh, African-American. First time that, of course, had happened in Virginia. Uh, and the more conservative, the, the people who'd been in charge of things before the war were largely uh, disenfranchised at this point. They were not part of the power structure. So they had this very different sort of uh, meeting. And the result was a um, progressive constitution. For example, uh, it established for the first time a um, statewide public education system. It began in when the 1870 constitution came into being. Well, this of course was the high watermark of enfranchisement because now you had alongside the white population, you had African-Americans who were part of the electorate. And so this is where I might want to go back for a moment to the 1776 Declaration of Rights, the language of which is interesting because on the one hand, it begins with very capacious notions of equality and openness, and it suggests government being for the common benefit, for everybody's benefit. But when it turns to talking about the franchise, who would actually be, be allowed to vote, it talks about 
requiring that voters show a, a what the Constitution called a permanent common interest in an attachment to the community. Well, they didn't say property, but at that time it meant property. Even so, that language is sufficiently open-ended that it could be, as I've already suggested, as the Constitution was successively uh, revised, it could be enlarged beyond simply property holders. Um, so when we get to 1867-68, as I say, you're at the high watermark, but then um, comes the post-Reconstruction period. After um, 1877, when the last federal troops left the South, you may know something about the contested election of, of 1876. Part of that settlement was the end of Reconstruction. And as the years, as the 19th century moved to a close, uh, though the North had been vic victorious in the Civil War, uh, their attention was, was drawn elsewhere. They were busy. It was an age of capitalism and uh, the transcontinental railway and, and burgeoning industries and a lot of money being made. And at any rate, the North was so preoccupied, they didn't seem to be much concerned that conservative forces in the South were turning the clock back. It started with statutes like uh, black laws that so-called black laws that tied uh, former slaves to the land through various kinds of devices. Uh, the Bourbon Democrats, as they were called, I mean, they could, they could not reestablish slavery, of course, the 13th Amendment took care of that, but they, they wanted as much of the ancien regime to be established as possible. So it, beginning in about 1890, southern states, the former Confederate states, began to um, rewrite their constitutions. And Mississippi, I think, was the first one, and then other states. And finally, Virginia met in 1901 and 1902. And the devices they were using were, they were very upfront about what, the, what they were setting out to do. Namely, they were there to reestablish white supremacy and to disenfranchise as many African-Americans as possible. So when the delegates who campaigned for and were elected to the uh, convention in Richmond, I mean, they were very, very, they said they were, they were white people and they were there for white interest and not for that of the, of the African-Americans. So um, you had a, a period, uh, a convention met to say, to, today you dress it up in, in kind of fancy talk. You know, you would, uh, I think you'd be much more oblique about your purposes. But when Carter Glass at the 1901-1902 convention was asked, uh, wouldn't the franchise provisions they were considering uh, discriminate? And he said, discriminate? What do you think we're here for? I mean, you know, I mean, he was very frank about it, that we're here to discriminate just as far as the federal constitution would, would allow. So... Um, the debates of that convention are really pretty remarkable. They um, they they're they're published, and they say they were they're very frank, and um, they set out as I say, disenfranchisement was was front and center. There were even some delegates who um, were not too keen on the the lesser classes being part of the franchise, you know, whatever their color might be, they were thought to be rabble. So there was that sort of sense that maybe the, the better sort of people should be running the state, you know, the, the folks, the lawyers, for example, and the, the ministers and, and the businessmen and, and uh, people like that. So um, you had um, just absolutely fascinating passages in the debates. Um, what about blacks? I mean, what, what place did they have in Virginia? Well, um, their place is on the land. As one of the delegates said, they belong in the cornfield and on the tobacco ground as agricultural laborers. That was the, the, the place they would have. There was actually some nostalgia for slavery. I mean, there, there were delegates who said, well, you know, blacks were really better off when they were slaves because they had benevolent masters who, uh, who took good care of them. Um, history and theology was invoked. Um, it was said that, you know, look at the thousands of years of civilized history and what, what contributions have African-Americans made? They, they really haven't. Uh, theology was invoked as if it were God's plan 
that the white white race be predominant or be dominant and the black race to be subservient. Um, education, it was thought, was wasted on blacks. They really uh, would just get pretensions. They wouldn't want to work on the land anymore. Uh, higher education was unthinkable. I mean, could you imagine blacks competing against whites as lawyers or doctors or something like that? So um, pr pretty, as I say, a pretty steady drumbeat of ideas from start to finish. Um, so what, what did they actually do about it? What did they put into place? Well, Mississippi had led the way. There were several devices uh, which varied from one state to another, but they all had a certain consistency. Um, one was sort of grandfather clauses. If you were a Confederate veteran or the son of a Confederate veteran, you got a free pass. You, you were enfranchised automatically. Otherwise, you'd have to go and register. You'd have to pay a poll tax. In Virginia, that was a dollar and a half. Well, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but in 1902, it was a lot of money. If you were a laboring person, uh, that was money you perhaps didn't have. And it was cumulative. If you hadn't paid it the year before, you'd have to pay $3. And the real clincher was the registration procedures. Um, you went to the registrar. You wanted to vote. The registrar could open the Constitution of Virginia to any place at random, show you a provision of it and ask you to interpret it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I have to tell you, there are provisions of the Virginia Constitution I can't interpret. You know, I thought I'd, I'd like to think I know something about it. If I cold called you on the Virginia Constitution, you might you might fail. To, you'd probably pass. You'd be all right. But <laughs> but not 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 if you were the wrong color. I mean, that was the point of it. The registrar had a carte blanche. And you'd go and try to register, and you, you're black. You're not going to satisfy the registrar. That was the whole point of it. The delegates, again, were very, very frank about that. So why go and even try when you know it's going to be a futile gesture? And it worked with grim efficiency. Um, in about 1867, um, African Americans made up about half of the registered voters in Virginia, in 1904, the first general election after the 1902 Constitution, uh, that figure dropped to less than 5%. So it was really, as I say, a very, a very efficient thing. So uh, indeed, it was so efficient that um, the delegates to the convention had been pledged. They, they were elected on a platform that um, they would put the proposed Constitution to a referendum, you know, let the people vote on it. I think they got to they got to thinking that maybe well with we disenfranchise all these people maybe they won't vote for it so they simply promulgated the constitution they just said to the people of Virginia here's your new constitution uh, that was not and then that was tested out of the Virginia Supreme Court um, a fellow who was convicted under a criminal law that was adopted after the new constitution came into being. Um, said, well, this law is not valid because the Constitution was never voted on. Supreme Court of Virginia kind of shuffled a little bit uncomfortably, but finally said, well, look, the governor and the judges and the legislators and all the officials have taken their oath of office under the 190 Constitution. It must be legitimate. So they, they rejected this, uh, this, this fellow's complaint. Um, so that's that's what happened. 1902, some of you are old enough, as I am, to remember the bird machine. That was a, a very, gen, as machines go, very genteel. It didn't have to go around beating people up, um, but it worked very efficiently. Uh, V.O. Key, who wrote a book in about 1950 on Southern politics, called it a, Virginia's Politics a Museum Piece. And that's just sort of, sort of the way it was. And the bird machine kind of worked through the local courthouse rings and through the compensation board in Richmond. And... Uh, each governor would, of course, they stand in line for the governorship. And it worked very, it was a very smooth operation until the 1960s. So when you get to the 1960s, well, actually come to the 1950s, Brown versus Board of Education begins to loosen things up when the Supreme Court said that um, there had to be desegregation in public education. But in the 1960s, I mean, again, many of you will remember that turbulent decade. I mean, it was just probably no decade quite like it in modern American history. Um, assassinations, John Kennedy, 
Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, riots and arson and looting in the cities, really a turbulent time, the beginning of Vietnam protest later in that, in that time. And beyond that, what you get, and here's where the Virginia Constitution is, is directly affected by it, um, you get important changes in federal law. U.S. Supreme Court, one person, one vote. Decisions are handed down, uh, which redrew the political map of America, including Virginia. You had the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965, which applied to Virginia as it did to, to most other southern states. And that meant that any changes in election laws had to be passed through the Justice Department or the District Court in the District of Columbia. And so you had a very tight sort of lock lock on that. Poll tax was outlawed. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision uh, ending the poll tax. So um, all all these things were part of the picture in in say in Virginia as it was elsewhere, and it really led to um, setting the stage for the writing of the present Constitution. In 1968, uh, Governor Mills Godwin asked the General Assembly for authority to to appoint a commission on constitutional revision. Um, That was done. He appointed a remarkable commission. Some of these names will be familiar to to all of you. Um, Lewis Powell, who later sat on the U.S. Supreme Court, was one of the commissioners. Uh, Colgate Darden, former governor, uh, former UVA president. Um, Oliver Hill, who was the preeminent uh, civil rights attorney at that time. He was the, in effect, the Thurgood Marshall of Virginia. Um, just Hardy Diller, dean of the law school at UVA, who later sat on the World Court at The Hague. I mean, just some of the best and brightest minds in Virginia were brought together to um, propose a new constitution. Um, they needed an executive director. This is when I got involved. They came to me and said they needed a hired hand as it fur to help with the drafting and sort of organize things and kind of put it all together. And um, I said, you want to write a new constitution? A uh, piece of cake. I can do, you know, I was a young law professor and you know, how young professors are, they can handle most anything. Uh, <laughs> what I didn't tell them was I hadn't read the old Virginia constitution. <laughs> I, I didn't know what was in it, uh, but I, I didn't tell them that. I think they might have not hired me if they had known. So I went and read it. I was amazed at what was in there. For example, it had provisions that um, if you fought a duel or seconded a duel or offered to fight a duel in Virginia, you lost your right to vote. Well, we decided that maybe dueling was not one of the pressing social issues of modern Virginia. So we, we took that out. Uh, if you've seen dueling has come back, you Blame us for that. For that, so we went to work. Um, had, of course, had some lawyers and, and folks as counsel to various subcommittees. Worked through the spring and summer of and fall of '68. Presented a report to the governor and general assembly on January the first, 1969. Um, I think it was a pretty good report. It was uh, so it was a lot of thought and, and and work went into it. It then went to the general assembly. They had a special session in. Uh, that in early 1969 to uh, receive and review and adjust the commission's recommendations. They made some changes, uh, but by and large approved the document. Then under Virginia law, it's like an amendment to the constitution. It has to be approved by two sessions of the legislature separated by a, uh, an election of delegates. So, at the next session of the legislature in 1970, they did they did approve it as it had been agreed to in 1969, and then it went on the ballot. Um, governor Linwood Holton, first Republican governor since Reconstruction, was in uh, the state house by then, and he asked me if I would run the direct the uh, referendum campaign, and I hadn't done any. I was not a politician. I didn't know much about elections, but I agreed to do that. And so I went on leave of absence at the law school and then uh, went around the state making speeches to people, to rotary clubs and to uh, black churches and union halls, any, any group set up um, a, a statewide campaign uh, committee. Uh, we had billboards and, and bumper stickers and all the paraphernalia of the campaign. 
And um, it was the first time I had encountered um, conspiracy theories in politics. We know a lot about them today, but they weren't quite as common then. Um, and I remember speaking to a Rotary Club down at Colonial Heights, you know, just south of Richmond. And there was this door-looking fellow sitting right in the front row um, tape recording my talk. And I knew that was not complimentary. I just didn't think about what he wanted to do with it. He brought with him a, a device that looked like the logo of the United Nations. And it had movable parts. So in the Q&A session, he could move some parts and the UN logo became the, the hammer and sickle of the Soviet Union. <laughs> so I said, wondered sort of what does this have to do with the Virginia Constitution? So what he was clearly saying was um, that this new proposed Constitution could not have been written in Virginia, could not have been written by Virginians. It must have been written in, in Beijing or Moscow or or worse yet, maybe in New York or Chicago. I mean, you know, but it couldn't. It was agreed to mention some of the commissioners, Lewis Powell and all that crowd. Well, so that was luckily in those days on the fringes of the political debate. And so when the vote finally was cast, uh, 72% of Virginians voted yes, which in politics is kind of a landslide. We were very pleased at that. We lost a few counties down on the south side, Mecklenburg and Brunswick, Charlotte, those some of those counties voted no, but otherwise the state voted pretty much, pretty much yes. Um, so, what it really has brought about, and this is where I really return to my my central theme, recalling what I'd said about the 1902 Constitution. I think what the, the 1971 Constitution really shut the door on that period of the turn of the excuse me, the turn of the 20th century. Uh, for example, there is now in the present constitution an anti-discrimination clause that shall be no governmental discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity and so forth. Um, and interestingly enough, by the way, it also includes gender. Gender. This is at the same time that the General Assembly in Richmond uh, turned down the proposed federal ERA. Um, actually, Virginia was the only state where it didn't even get to the floor of the legislature. Other states debated it and said, no, <clears throat> Virginia didn't even do that. So while doing that on the one hand, the legislature on the other hand was putting a, a little ERA in the state constitution. So that's, I think that's sort of interesting. Maybe the thought was you could trust Virginia judges and courts to interpret that provision, but you couldn't trust the U.S. Supreme Court to interpret a federal amendment. So there's an anti-discrimination clause. Probably the most important changes um, were those in the education article, Article 8. And it begins with a mandate to the General Assembly to have uh, public schools throughout the Commonwealth for every child of school age. And that was meant, of course, to shut the door on massive resistance when, the, as you know, the schools were closed in places like Prince Edward County, and other places more briefly, but the notion was to make that impossible, constitutionally impossible. And that mandate to the General Assembly is coupled with a mandate to counties and cities that once the General Assembly puts up its share of money, um, school funds, then the locality is obliged to put up its share. And I would argue that the Attorney General could mandamus a county or city that failed to do that. So that again, made it clear no more Prince Edward counties in Virginia that the schools will st will stay open. Now, that's sort of retrospective, as it were, trying to fix a problem which had existed in the past. It then led to the question, well, what about the future? What, what should we do prospectively to achieve quality education in Virginia? Uh, the commission's draft originally had started out by saying the General Assembly shall ensure quality education, which has the language of mandate about it. Um, Governor Godwin thought that was a perhaps invited litigation. So finally, it was agreed that that language should, would say, shall seek to ensure. It becomes an aspiration rather than a, than a mandate. But to, to put some teeth into it, the commissioners divide something which I, I think was new in state constitutions. I'm not aware of one that had done this previously. And it set out, created, I'm sure you know about standards of quality, 
provided for in the Constitution. And Article 8 gives primacy to the Board of Education in fashioning the standards with the General Assembly having the, having the final say. So it's a kind of compromise between letting the experts do whatever they think right and simply putting it entirely in the, uh, in the political process. One can fairly debate today, and I think educators would, how well this is working out. Are we really achieving what we want to do in public education? But certainly the present constitution pushes it in the, in the right direction. So you had educational reform, reform in the, say, the anti-discrimination provision. A lot of other things happened in the Constitution. It's shorter, better organized, more, it's a better working document as a fundamental law for Virginia than the old Constitution was, which frankly read like a statute book. It was far too long and too detailed. Um, new Constitution has a um, environmental quality conservation article that was no, nothing like that in the old constitution. So I think by and large, I would argue that the new constitution is pretty good. Now it's been 50 years. Uh, should there be changes? Uh, I can think of things that I would like to have seen done at the time, which weren't done or things maybe we didn't think about at that time. Uh, for example, um, I'm sure you follow the debate on the, um, re-enfranchisement of former felons. Remember Governor McAuliffe uh, issued an executive order that would have re-enfranchised something like 205,000 former people who served their time. You know, they were back in society again. Uh, the thought being that if they can vote, then that gives them a, more of a tie to the community. So they feel like they have more investment in it. And, and you may recall that the, uh, the critics of that action then went to the to the, to the Supreme Court of Virginia, which um, held uh, four to three, as I remember, as a close vote, uh, that the governor could not re-enfranchise felons, former felons, as a class. He had to do it one at a time, one at a time. Well, then <laughs> Governor McAuliffe said, well, that's fine. That's what auto pens are for. And <laughs> he went to work and actually re-enfranchised rather a large number of people. So, I mean, I think you could argue, and this I think this would be my present view, that the Constitution ought to simply say that once you've served your time, you can vote. You shouldn't have to go through the process of hoping that a governor might see fit to take action. But that's the sort of thing that one might debate 50 years after this present Constitution was adopted. Um, Dillon's rule, should localities be held in a tight tether that they only have those powers explicitly given to them by state law, that would be a question. Should we limit the governor to one one term at a time? We're the last state in the country that uh, that does that. Uh, and I'm sure there are other uh, various other questions that you could, you could easily uh, think about. And indeed, maybe in the Q&A session, um, we can we can talk about some of them. So um, that that's basically the story. To say to me, many constitutions do a lot of things, but one th thing that they should do, which I think they, they can do, is create what I call the political community. If you have notions that everybody enjoys certain certain rights simply as, as, as human beings, natural rights, if you like, you then have to decide who really is part of that community. And we've had ups and downs in Virginia's history uh, up until the end of the 19th century very much down with the 1902 constitution, closer, I think, to um, long-term aspirations in the 1971 document. I mean, maybe the theme that we might lay out as a way of thinking about all this is language that you found in George Mason's 1776 declaration, uh, still in the Virginia uh, Bill of Rights, our present declaration of rights, and it is that uh, we have to, that free government depends on, I think the language is, uh, a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. That Jefferson is for generational change, but notwithstanding the change, there's certain threads and themes that run through all this that one should, should be thinking about. So um, there's the story. Thank you so much for letting me talk about it. And I think we probably have time for some questions if you like, but thanks so much. Thank you.
I've been asked to, to, to note that if you have questions, wait for the microphone to be handed to you. Um, I think there's one in either aisle, so I'm going to let, uh, can we start here and then we'll bounce over to the far, far side over there. Well, Professor Howard, it's great to see you. And uh, Thank you. I was honored to have you as a common law professor at the university. My question is, what was the interaction like with the two bird machine governors and Oliver Hill? Yeah. I mean, can you speak to that chemistry of that group? Isn't that interesting? Um, so again, people, older people in the audience who remember that period of the 50s and 60s uh, will remember Mills Godwin. And when he was a state senator from southeastern Virginia, um, he was a massive resistor. I mean, he, he was one of the people that voted for the legislation that allowed schools to be closed. I mean, he's part of it, that really unhappy chapter. So how in the world did he get to be somebody put reform in place? I, I don't know. The, the, there may be a backstory to it for all I know. I suspect he was a very candy politician. I mean, Mills Godwin was one of the abler, um, most nimble governors we've had. And I have a feeling that by the late 60s, he was smart enough to see that you couldn't stand in the way of change that was going to happen. And I think he was sensible. This is where I give him credit. Say, I don't give him a lot of credit for what he'd done in his earlier years in the, as a member of the legislature. But I think he understood, and this certainly was one of the themes of the Constitutional Revisions Report, which you can read, and that is that Virginians wanted to take their destiny back in their own hands. We'd seen the state being dragged through the courts, Brown versus Board from Prince Edward County. We'd seen the schools being closed. Uh, it took a, a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1964. I have to say that as a personal note, I was sitting at Justice Hugo Black's elbow when he wrote the opinion ordering Prince Edward County to reopen its schools and fund them. But this was all coming from the U.S. Supreme Court. You had the Voting Rights Act, 1965, so the courts and Congress and the federal executive were basically calling the shots. And I think the commission properly, and I think this may have been in Mills Godwin's mind, said, well, whatever is happening, we Virginians want to, want to be in charge. It's our life that we have to lead. We ought to be making these decisions, of course, consistent with federal law. And so I think that was, I, I'm guessing that was a part of Mills Godwin's thinking, but um, whatever the reason he, and he selected, I mean, not surprisingly, someone like Lewis Powell, who was at the apex of the Virginia bar, former president of the American Bar Association. That was an easy call, but to pick Oliver Hill, um, I mean, it didn't take courage to do it, but it took foresight to do it. Um, and it was also a bipartisan commission, commission, Ted Dalton, sometime candidate for governor was on it. So, so I, I would give Dalton, I mean, I'm sorry, um, Godwin credit for what I think was in his mind at that, that time, um, shows that people can have a political change of heart. Good question. Thank you. You get a passing grade in my class for <laughs> starting us off. Yes, sir. But at a time of elevated, uh, awareness, uh, certainly, uh, gender equality, the commission did not include women. That's right. Uh, what was uh, Governor Godwin's thinking yeah. or not <laughs> on that? And there was only one person of color, of course. Yeah. Isn't that in, that's a lovely, I started to add an answer to the first question that though the commission was biracial and bipartisan, it was one gender, it was all male. It's unimaginable today that you would have any significant public body of whatever kind that was all male. I just, I mean, I, to, when I'm asked to sit on programs with a panel and that sort of thing, if it's all men, I'd object to that. I think, you know, it's just, just not what, what you do. But 1968, the, I guess you, people could debate where the women's rights movement began, but that was about when it really got started. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir and the second sex and books like that. ERA itself was proposed in the early 70s. In my classrooms at UVA, there were women students in the 60s, but there weren't many. I mean, in the bar, at the bar, and on the bench, and the rest, women were drastically underrepresented as of the late 60s. 70s really changed that. By the end of the 70s, the picture was very different. So you had people like uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who could then be the first Supreme Court justice. But 
That didn't happen until the 1980s. You had an all-male, you had blacks on the Supreme Court before you had women on the Supreme Court. So it was not unusual to do what Mills Godwin did. One doesn't give him credit for that. He, <laughs> one wishes he had been foresighted and farsighted enough to say it can't be an all-male group. But I think in the setting of the time, I guess I'm not too surprised that it worked out the way it did. So uh, other questions, please, where there's one right here in the middle. Yes, is there um, a legal or procedural distinction between simply amending the current constitution rather than writing a new one? And were there amendments between the 1902 and 1970? Uh, Gee, that's an interesting, if you all could hear the question, this gentleman has asked if there's a procedural d d distinction between amending the constitution and just writing, writing a new one. It's interesting that the, what you vote, when you voted on the, what became the present constitution, you were voting on in technical procedural terms, an amendment to the 1902 constitution. It was a big amendment. It was the entire constitution, but it was posed as an amendment. The other route would be to have a convention. You could, you could call a convention as like the 1902 convention, 1901-1902 convention. Uh, I think in modern times that becomes more and more difficult and tricky. I mean, I, if we were to rewrite Virginia's constitution, I personally would not be comfortable with calling a convention because, well, there was a time conventions might hold together. I think the crazies would take over today on whichever side, you know, you, you pick the issue. You'd have all the uh, people who were on one side or the other of guns or abortion or church and state, you pick the issue. And I think they just couldn't find common ground the way perhaps one time they could. So at any rate, um, the amendment route was chosen, which of course meant, as I mentioned, that the legislature had to approve this <laughs> amendment, this new constitution in these, in these two sessions before it went on the ballot. Um, I think it was not only do I worry about what a convention might do today in the year 2021, um, I think it's probably well to have had the Constitution go through the political, through the legislative process, to have legislators have a, have a voice. Now, maybe they shouldn't control the process. But I found, for example, that, I mean, here I was a law professor with no political experience. I learned a lot about the political limitations of Constitution making. I mean, I'll give you one example. Um, constitutional officers sheriffs and commissioners of the revenue and you know five officers are in the constitution they probably don't need to be they could just be creatures of statute but when we were writing the when the commission was at work in virginia and that question was one of the ones that came up i went up to maryland and talked to people who had been part of a unsuccessful constitutional revision in that state they had a convention they took their constitutional officers out of the constitution and in doing that it may have sounded like a good idea but they created an automatic center of opposition in every courthouse in maryland constitutional officers like being at the constitution so in maryland the new the proposed constitution was defeated in all but two counties in the entire state it carried prince george's and montgomery county it was shot down by margins of eight to one in some of the eastern shore counties. So I came back to Virginia and told my commissioners, I said, you know, whatever you think of the idea in theory, don't do it. It's just, you know, you, you don't gain very much and you, it could be extensive cost. So that was a debate within the commission. When the proposed constitution then went to the legislature, then, as I say, you had political input of people who were seasoned uh, folks who shape uh, state policy in general. Um, that's a little larger an answer than your question called for, but I just thought it's interesting. Thank you for the question because it reminds you of the procedural aspects. You know, constitutions, like so many laws, are not theory. I mean, they, they may be based in theory, but they have to be adopted by real people in the political process. And I, I think we were, one reason we got 72% of the vote was that I think the political dimensions of it, it kept it from being a perfect constitution. 
but perfect constitutions exist in in textbooks and not uh, not in, in reality. Other questions, we I'm happy to respond. Uh, if you have questions, so I think I'm asking you to read um, Mills Gogman's mind again. <laughs> Um, he changed from Republican to Democrat um, in his, each of his two terms. Uh, what effect do you think yeah. the Constitutional Convention, if you want to call it that, um, the commission had on his change of mind? Well, it was from Democrat to Republican. Excuse me. Yeah, but you knew that. I mean, you just, you just reversed it. But he was a Democrat the first time he served and then a Republican the next time. He, I'm sure you all know he was the only governor since uh, Reconstruction, since Extra Billy Smith, the governor of back in the 19th century. First time a Virginia governor had served a second term. You can't serve two consecutive terms, but you can serve a non-consecutive term and obviously as you know we have a former governor running now for a non-consecutive term but interesting in godwin's case from one party to the other i think it was during that period of com complete realignment of the parties and in part in good part i mentioned the voting rights act the civil rights act of 1964 the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I think I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said that the Democratic Party in the South would be would be ruined because of the Civil Rights Act. And I I think Godwin, whatever his progressive ideas that may have led him to appoint the commission that he did, um, I think was not comfortable with the Democratic Party as it was then evolving in the late 60s, early 70s, and drew him to the Republican side. So I think in his case. He was simply much more comfortable being a, a, a Republican in the 1970s. Uh, by the by, the time he ran for re-election, uh, I, I may work on constitutions, but I don't give political advice. <laughs> so you know, uh, ju just like I don't don't take cash bets on Supreme Court opinions. Uh, you, know, you know, they do a lot of unusual things. Do we have other questions? We, there's one one right here. Hi. Um, could it happen in Virginia, and how difficult would it be um, for the law to change like it just did in Texas about abortion? The abortion law in Texas, could the same thing happen here? How difficult would it be to change? The Texas? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we've strayed into much more touchy territory. Uh, you know, the great thing about my speaking to an audience like this is I go back to Charlottesville, I have tenure. <laughs> You know, I don't think if you if you all don't like my answers, I mean, you can make some noise about. It. I don't think you can get me fired for for, for what I may, may say here. But the abort, I think this this is going to be a seismic shift in the in the scene over abortion rights. Roe versus Wade was 1973. I mean, that's almost 50 years ago. You think it might be subtle law by then? Indeed. People probably forget that it was a seven to two decision. I mean, it was lopsided. Lewis Powell joined the majority opinion, for example. He didn't think the court didn't think it was very controversial. Important issue, yes, but the right to life movement as we know it really has come into being since because of Roe versus Wade. And now I think during the 70s, 80s, 90s, right along through the Burger Court, the Rehnquist Court, up to the early Roberts Court. Uh, there was no working majority on the court. You typically had blocks on the liberal side and the conservative side, but then you typically had someone with the balance of power that was at one time Powell, later Sandra Day O'Connor, later Anthony Kennedy, and fairly recently John Roberts, the chief justice. But I think now with the three Trump appointees to the court, the three newest justices, and the departure, for example, of uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, the balance on the court has shifted dramatically so that we now have for the first time since the Warren court, a, a working majority announced a conservative working majority of six to three. So that even if Roberts is more of a centrist, he may not be necessary to the conservative justices, which means that some of the hot button issues gun rights, for example, or affirmative action or abortion 
<clears throat> are really, you might see major changes. Now, I, up to this point, I've been predicting that Roe v. Wade would not be overruled, but would be gradually diminished and circumscribed and undercut so that, if, in fact, it might be a bit of, of a relic, in effect. But that would take some time. It's entirely possible there, there are certainly justices on the present court who'd like to simply overrule Roe. So the Texas case is a, is a funny one. I'm sure you all have been following this because the Texas legislature passed a, a law that did not entrust any state official to execute the law, none. Entirely private citizens who could go and get, what, $10,000, I think, for, for bringing a bringing it. And that's that was meant, designed to forestall judicial review because state action is required by the 14th Amendment. Texas would argue, but no state official is doing anything, so there's no state action. Well, my own view is if you empower a private citizen to bring that lawsuit on behalf of the state, that is state action, but that's that's my, my personal reading of it. So if the if they can get past that, they might reach the merits. In the meantime, there's a case from Mississippi, which doesn't go as far as the Texas law does. It doesn't just shut the door down completely, but makes but is not consistent with Roe versus Wade as it has been interpreted so far. So the Mississippi case could turn out to be the one where they really reach the merits sooner. Well, that case is already on the docket. Texas case, as you may know, the Supreme Court refused to uh, to issue an injunction against the early enforcement of that law. So it's it's something, I mean, I say I don't take cash bets on the Supreme Court, especially in an area like this. And I have thought up until now that the move to the right on the part of the court would be to the right, but it would be step-by-step step or incremental. Um, I'm a little less confident of that now, but we, we will know in a matter of months. Um, so probably have we come to the point of, I don't want to keep you all past your lunchtime. So, uh, I think maybe um, if you don't have another burning question, again, thank you so much for letting me come and, and talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>